Welcome to the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. Thank you for being part of the show. And I welcome you, reminding you that we happy warriors know that the more that things change, the more we need to depend on those things that never change. And here it is, for me, uh, it's only a few hours before the festival of Passover, the Pesach, begins. And so naturally, it's very much on my mind. But what's important to remember is that the Passover contains very important information, not just for me, but for you too, not just for us happy warriors, but for everybody. And what I mean by that is that um, we have a program that I prepared called Let Me Go. It's a one-hour audio program, and uh, on the cover of it, if you look for it on the website at rabbidaniellappin.com, you'll see that it actually says, Let My People Go, and then My People is crossed out, and the Me is put there. And this is because in the Lord's language in Hebrew, Egypt is not just a place name. And as a matter of fact, this is true for every name throughout the Hebrew Scriptures. And that's one of the reasons I've, I've spoken in the past about the Rabbi Daniel Lappin recommended Bible. And one of the reasons I like it so much is that it uses the actual name. So when you read in the book of Exodus in my Bible, uh, you won't read about Egypt. You'll read about Mitzrayim. And that Hebrew word Mitzrayim not only means Egypt, but it also means a kind of a, a straight jacket, a restriction. And what it means is anything at all that obstructs you from reaching your God-given destiny. And uh, it's just, it's, it's important to realize that the 12 chapters at the beginning of the book of Exodus that talk about the Exodus, that's a lot of material for an incident that happened one time in history. If I was writing this book, I'd save a lot of ink. And I would have said, look, God took the children of Israel out of Egypt with many plagues and many miracles. And for those of you who don't have a life and you want to read every single excruciating detail, there's an appendix at the back of this book. But that's not (laughs) what the great author in heaven did. Uh, He gave us every detail inside, and the reason is because this isn't just about a history of something that happened a long time ago. Oh, no. This is about an instruction manual for each and every one of us getting out of our own Egypt. Well, what is Egypt? Well, it's a straitjacket. It's a restriction. Uh, There is something you know you're capable of doing, right? There's something that you could be doing. There is a destiny you dream of. You know where you belong. It's not a, fan- a fantasy. It's, it's a real dream. But you're stopped from getting there. Something is obstructing you. That is your Egypt. 
And whatever your Egypt is, it could be a financial stress. It could be marital stress. Maybe it's you want to get married. You want to build a family and you're not finding the right partner. Um, you know, maybe it's a substance addiction or pornography addiction or any of the addictions, whatever it is, you are, or maybe you, you lack the willpower. You haven't yet built up your willpower to do what you know you ought to do when you ought to do it. All of these are Egypt's. And so uh, we prepared a, uh, a one-hour audio program that you can listen to again and again and again. You could download it right after the, the podcast and uh, you can uh, use it to actually derive the three most important lessons from the book of Exodus for how, not how the Israelites got out of Egypt, no, how you get out of your Egypt. It's, it's crucially important and, uh, and something that is, is valuable to every one of us because although I do not know what your Egypt is, I know what my own Egypt are, but I don't know what your Egypt is, but nonetheless, I'm perfectly confident that you are in Egypt, that you are in some situation that is obstructing you and preventing you from reaching your destiny, your God-given destiny, where you really ought to be. And the, the whole Passover experience and the whole Exodus discussion has a lot to do with that. So I will leave that for you to download and get yourself. I won't go into those details now, but I will tell you about three different things, if you don't mind. The first one is that... Um, on the Passover, the most important observance is something called the Seder, and uh, I'll be starting mine this evening. Uh, today's date happens to be uh, Friday, um, April the 15th, and, um, and Friday night happens to be the first Seder this particular year. You might be watching this in 2023 or 2025, and I hope you are, but uh, the Seder is starting in just a few hours. And the Seder is a, uh, a program that we are guided through by a printed agenda called a Haggadah, the actual book that walks us through the Seder experience. And it's very specific. It has 15 agenda items, and it's down to the detail. If you feel like a, a drink of wine, you may not have it. You have to wait until we reach the point in the Haggadah where you are supposed to drink the first cup of wine or the second or the third or the fourth, and that's when you drink. You might feel hungry. You might like a nibble of matzah. No, you cannot even do that. You have to have that specifically when it's called for. Well, you can see the paradox, right? The paradox is this is a festival of freedom and redemption, and yet we have every single detail of the evening mapped out and there can be no departure from this organized agenda. What's that? Freedom means you relax, take a chill pill, take it easy, do what you feel like when you feel like doing it. And uh, I am sure that as I pause for just a moment here and I, I speak slowly, your mind is racing. And that you have probably already resolved this paradox between, on the one hand, a festival of freedom and redemption, no more slavery, no more oppression, no more Egypt, no more Mitzrayim. But on the other hand, why 
it's almost as if we've exchanged one boss for another one. Here we go. This is what you must do. And tonight you've got to sit this way and eat this. What's going on here? And here, my friends, is perhaps my happy warriors. You know this. It's one of the most important lessons. And that is that if you are not able to apply your own restrictions and limits and restraints on yourself, you'll be a slave forever. What do I mean by that? Paradoxically, the road to freedom is restraint. The road to freedom is rules, structure, and order. And one of the great tragedies is children and young people growing up believing that they are free and nobody bosses them around and they therefore never learn enough to be able to take a job. They will have to depend on government welfare. And I've seen this happen in the United Kingdom and in the United States. They can't hold down a job because one of the most important things holding down a job is to be able to restrain yourself and to say, I'd like to give that customer a piece of my mind, or I'd like to tell my boss what I think about him, but you don't do that. And what is more free? To be a ward of the state, to be a recipient of welfare, to be dependent on the charity of your fellow citizens, or to be able to earn your own living? What really represents freedom and independence? Surely the latter. But you can't do that if you haven't learnt restraint. You know, there's a reason why, uh, until not that long ago, the community was very involved in the decision of a man and a woman to live together. And this was called marriage. This is a, a, a public process. It, it doesn't take place in private. It gets written down. Why is that? Because it also represents a restraint on another one of our bodily appetites. Because free and unrestrained exercise of that appetite will result in a lot of children being born for whom nobody wishes to take responsibility. And so the end result is that we, the society, we, the community, end up having to reach into our pockets and support the children who are born to people who just don't care. And so that is why society and the community have a very important say about whom, with whom you choose to form a, a, a liaison and how you do it and when you do it. Now today, of course, we're living in times where that's all gone and we're watching the result. The uh, social burden of single mothers and children without homes and without fathers keeps on climbing both in the United Kingdom and in the United States. Other places as well. It's just that I'm very familiar with the details and the numbers in England and America. And, um, and these are ways in which we see that freedom is attained. Real freedom is attained by the exercise of rules, order, restraint. And so the very word say there, the, the experience we have this evening, 
is the word seder actually means order, structure. That's it, because that is the avenue to freedom. That is the, the way to actually get somewhere. So, look, um, whether you are um, raising children and building a family now, maybe you're going to in the future. Maybe you're not there yet. Or maybe you're past that point. You've already raised your children. And there's only one fourth possibility, and that is that uh, you know somebody who is raising children to whom you could be very helpful in helping to convey some of these points that we're discussing right now. That's right. In raising children, one of the most important things is conveying this idea that the ultimate freedom comes via rules, structure, order, restraint, discipline. If you can't teach and implant in your children, the young people for whom you are responsible, if you fail to implant a, uh, a structure of discipline and self-discipline and restraint, you are creating eternal slaves, people who will ever be in servitude to others and to their own bodies and incapable of actually achieving any degree of freedom. And so here is something which has enormous application to public policy, tax policy, welfare policy, in any country in the world. And this is taken directly from the book of Exodus and the Passover experience. That freedom is celebrated paradoxically by structure and... I mean, isn't that terrific? You want freedom? Yeah, okay, well, guess what? You really want freedom? You're going to have to achieve it through order and structure and discipline. That's the only way it works. Wow. That's not the only area of public life in which the Passover experience and the whole book of Exodus is significant. In 1992... Uh, one of the editors of the Wall Street Journal, a very bright guy called Robert Bartley, no longer alive, but he, he published a book that was important at the time and was called The Seven Fat Years and How to Do It Again. He published it in 1992. The Seven Fat Years and How to Do It Again. I'll tell you what's interesting about that. I have actually tried this out. And I have said to people, mostly millennials, you know, people under the age of 30, whose education has been through GICs, government indoctrination camps. We used to call those things public schools, but that's not the right name anymore. And um, their education has been through uh, government universities. I have actually said to people like that in conversation, um, a book was published in 1992 by Robert Bartley called The Seven Fat Years. Could you take a guess at what the profession of uh, Robert Bartley is? From, from what point of view is he writing about? Is it fiction? Or do you think it, uh, it's about economics? Or do you think it, it's about um, engineering and, and, uh, and, civil, uh, and, and buildings? Do you think it's about geography? Like, what do you, or maybe do you think maybe it's about diets and nutrition? What do you think it's, in other words, what I'm testing to see is whether people 
have ever heard the expression the seven fat years from the end of the book of Genesis, the whole story of Joseph in Egypt and how the Israelites arrived in Egypt. How can you not know the phrase the seven fat years? Well, um, try it yourself and you will be shocked at how many people look at you with a blank expression and simply have absolutely no idea whatsoever as to what that means. It's, it's true. We live in a time of biblical illiteracy, which is extraordinary because it didn't used to be like that. As a matter of fact, the whole United States of America, the founders during that process saw themselves as reenacting the book of Exodus, even to the point of view of crossing the Atlantic Ocean instead of the Red Sea, escaping from tyranny and building a place of freedom where everyone can worship as he or she chooses. This is an extraordinary thing, and so much so, by the way, that people may not know this, but in the founding of the United States, they, um, uh, they, the founders, one of the things they did was talk about what the seal, the great seal of the United States would look like. You'll see it now on a United States dollar bill. But um, uh, we know that uh, John Adams sent a letter to his wife, Abigail Adams. By the way, the correspondence between the two of them in the 1770s is mind-boggling. It's something to read. But um, this, uh, John Adams wrote to Abigail, his wife, on the 14th of August, 1776. And he said, I am put upon a committee to prepare a device for a golden medal to commemorate. The, and he's talking about establishing the great seal of the United States. They called it a device. And so John Adams, Thomas Jefferson, and Benjamin Franklin were put on a committee to determine what the great seal of the United States would look like. And so he goes on to talk about they found an artist who can draw it. And then he, uh, he goes on and he says, Dr. Dr. Franklin, but he calls him Dr. F. Dr. Franklin proposes for the seal, Moses lifting up his wand and dividing the Red Sea and Pharaoh in his chariot overwhelmed with the waters. And the motto will be rebellion to tyrants is obedience to God. This is mind-boggling because you'd thought that he, you know, is he mocking it? Does he say, what a mad idea? I mean, why would anyone pull an old verse from a long forgotten book called the Bible? No, he thought this was a great plan. Um, he, uh, um, he, uh, he, he says, uh, oh, Mr. Jefferson so he, he talks about, he also gives what he proposed. Uh, Mr. Jefferson proposed the children of Israel in the wilderness led by a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Isn't that something? So out of the three of them, Jefferson, Adams, and Franklin, two of them wanted to make the great seal of the United States reflect the biblical story of Exodus. It's extraordinary. Um Adams himself came up with something else, and then he finishes off his letter to his wife by saying, I shall conclude by repeating my request for horses and a servant. Let the horses be good ones. I cannot ride a bad horse so many hundred miles. And he goes on, he says, I miss you. I wish I could come home, but the affairs of this new country are incredibly uh, urgent and pressing. He can't come. That was August 1776. So you know what's going on. I mean, there's a war to be fought big drama but he takes time to write 
how the great seal of the United States was going to be a depiction from the book of Exodus. Isn't that something? I mean, it's mind-boggling. That's what it's like. And um, so, uh, so there, there is the, the first thing. Oh, I, I should probably, well, I'll, I'll come back to that. But the, um, the, the thing here, in other words, child raising, whether you're doing it or will do it, or you have friends or somebody you care about who's trying to raise children, please talk to them seriously about this lesson of Passover in the book of Exodus. And that is that freedom doesn't just mean license. It doesn't mean you can now do anything. It means that you actually now, since you no longer have a slave master running your life and making sure that you work at some times, and then he'll tell you when you can eat your meal. That's what slave owners do. But if you want to be free, then you've got to tell yourself those things. Work, that takes self-discipline. Build a business, self-discipline. Get married, takes self-discipline and bigness. Uh, build a family, takes work and takes bigness, takes gigantic vision to be able to see and do all of that. And so that's lesson one from the Passover. In raising children, the... Uh, the, and, and ourselves, for that matter, uh, discipline, order, structure is the avenue to genuine freedom. Uh, the, the second lesson is that um, when you live in an environment where someone else is taking care of your needs, you live in an environment where either you're a slave and uh, in his own interests, the, the evil slave owner uh, is feeding you because he wants more work out of you. There is always a certain area of terrible damage that occurs. It's exactly the same if you're on welfare. And as I said, I, I've seen this tragically in, in two countries. Um, and that is that when uh, you live on a government check, which was obtained by coercive taxation of your fellow citizens. Money was taken from them and given to you. When you live on that kind of payment, either as a slave or in a funny kind of a way, almost as a slave equivalent, as a, uh, a dependent on the government, guess what the uh, casualty is? Fathers and husbands vanish. That's right. I've seen it in England, and I've seen it in the United States of America. Uh, welfare recipients in America, the fathers and the husbands tend to vanish. Welfare recipients in the United Kingdom, fathers and husbands vanish. And we saw this begin to happen in the 1960s. That's when welfare began to be uh, in, enlarged and expanded, basically making it uh, unnecessary to work. And a person could choose to actually have their needs taken care of by the government. And what did we find? We found that at that period, in the early 1960s, in both countries that I understand and know, uh, marriages and uh, family structure fell apart. So a lot of people think that in the United States, the collapse of family structure is a legacy of slavery. That's not true. It's true that slavery terribly impacted marriage structure.
that by 1960 it had already long rebuilt. It was marriage was in good shape in the United States of America across all sections of society and in England as well. Came the government and said to women, you don't need a man in your life. Now, a lot of women to this day will say, I don't need a man. I can make my own money. Okay, look, uh, that's all very nice. But um, the fact remains that there, if you want children, there are going to be certain stretches of your life where you will not be able to work very well. And, um, and if in, in, a, in, in a genuine, economically free environment, not many... Uh, employers are going to want to employ you. It's a simpler, it's very expensive to train an employee. And if they're then going to take off for six months or nine months or three months, it's, it's not a joke. And people now say, well, it's, 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 it's a reproductive right and employers have to give time off for pregnancy and time off for childbirth. No, they really don't. We're living in an unrealistic environment. All you have to do is put yourself in the position of an employer trying to build a business. You're a small entrepreneur and you've hired somebody. And um, you, for the first few months of her employment, she's costing you every month because she's not producing enough revenue to make it worthwhile. And it's only after she's trained that she's able to. And then she lets you know that she's pregnant and that she's going to be taking time off for having the baby and looking after the baby. And you say, well, <laughs> goodbye. And she says, no, you have to keep my job open for me. Ask yourself whether that's freedom. We're all accustomed to looking at it from one angle. And I understand it from that angle. But let's also try and understand it from the other angle. Right? Who, is, who has the right to compel an employer to employ somebody who's not going to be uh, economically viable. It's not so simple. And, uh, and so we, we've got to understand that the financial element of marriage is crucially important. And this is one of the reasons that we know, sadly, uh, we know that um, marriages where the woman doesn't need the man, where the woman makes more money by far, than the man, those marriages don't last for long. There was a Robert De Niro, Anne Hathaway movie a number of years back called The Intern, where Anne Hathaway um, plays a, a woman who started a huge internet company that's hugely successful, and her husband stays home and takes care of their little girl. And sure enough, he has an affair. And of course, in the movie, everything works out beautifully and it's all okay. In real life, it really doesn't. Um, the uh, the 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 role of the husband as breadwinner is far more important. Now I know a lot of you are thinking to yourself, "Oh, listen, he's all old-fashioned and he's still stuck in the 19th century." No, I'm actually stuck in the zero century. I'm 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 2,000 years old. Is is the information I'm sharing? And I'll tell you a little secret: it hasn't changed a bit in 2,000 years. We can fool ourselves as much as we like. But if the uh, woman is made, if she gets money from the government, she no longer needs the man around, and he feels it. And when men feel redundant and unneeded, see, we guys, we need our women to need us. If we feel unneeded, 
It's a terrible feeling. It's one step away from impotence, which is ghastly for a man. So it, it, it's, not, it's not a viable thing at all, and it really, really doesn't work well. I had, to, I had to tell you something else in that context as well, and uh, it eludes me for the moment. doesn't matter. Um, I'll come back to it. But uh, I want to point out that before the Exodus can happen, listen to what goes on. We're talking about Exodus chapter, 11, uh, ele- chapter 12. And um, chapter 12, right at the beginning, before you're going to leave, you have to have a family meal. You're not getting out of Egypt till you've had a family meal. Again, that's another thing that falls apart in slavery conditions. And it's not a mistake to liken the entire class of welfare recipients. I'm thinking of people I, I, I got to know in England. And there's no such thing as a family meal because there's no such thing as a family. Husbands and fathers are vanished. It's mother-headed households, sometimes with grandma in the house as well. And they don't have family meals. Not there. And so to rebuild from slavery, you've got to rebuild the family. A family isn't a family if a father and a husband isn't sitting in his chair and playing his role. That's crucial. So chapter 12 in Exodus, verse 3, speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, on the 10th of this month, everybody should take a, uh, a sheep, a lamb, and you have to barbecue it, and you have to make a meal, and all of this has got to be done in a father-led household. In, if you have already got yourself a copy of the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Recommended Bible, you'll be looking on page 197. Page 197, verse 3, and I'll read it now in the English instead of translating myself from the Hebrew. Uh, Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth day of this month they shall take to them every man a lamb, according to the house of the fathers. Now, that's a, an archaic expression, which I think they lifted off the King James translation. But um, as you can see, uh, the father is, is very essential, very central, very needed. And so that would be the second uh, principle from the Passover experience. And that's why uh, I shall be leading tonight's Seder experience, in spite of the fact that there will be plenty other men like, you know, my children, sons, sons-in-law. I, I've got children who are perfectly capable of leading the Seder, but it's going to be the ranking father. <laughs> and that's, that's your rabbi. That's me. So uh, that's, that's how it works. I'm looking forward to it. It's a privilege. It's very, very exciting. Uh, but it's got to be a father-led process because fathers are absolutely crucial to attain freedom. And freedom, again, just ask yourself, who experiences more freedom? Imagine uh, two little boys, one raised in a a house with a mother and a father, where self-discipline is taught and structure is taught, and the children are devoted to the parents, and the parents are devoted to the children. And and this child is going to be growing up, and uh, compare him with another little child, same age, same circumstance, raised in a home with no father. And obviously, under those circumstances, education is a push. 
And here are two little boys who are going to grow and they don't have an equal shot at freedom in the years ahead. They really don't. One of them is likely to remain enslaved to, if you like, a system. And uh, the other one is going to have freedom and independence. He's going to be able to make choices in his life because he's going to be able to make a living and make money. And the other won't. How sad and how tragic is that? And so that would be the second lesson. And uh, finally, the third lesson of the um, uh, of the, the Passover Seder. And before I, I tell you that, I want to remind you again that uh, at my website at rabbidaniellappin.com, uh, you will be able to look for something called the Holistic You. The Holistic You is a free ebook that you can download. And it will expose you to this literally mind-boggling concept. And that is that your life is the integrated systemic cooperation of five different areas of operation. One of them is family. One is finance. One is faith. One is fitness. And one is friendships and connection. Very important. Who would have thought that if you're interested in building your finances, you have to worry about your family. Who would have thought that if you're interested in building your friendships, you need to think about your faith? And so the holistic you emphasizes the idea. This book that you may get for free uh, emphasizes, you know, I've got some really, really noises going on in this uh, office of mine today. Um, sorry about that. And um, the... Um, uh, the, 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 the Holistic You is a book that you can download and it introduces you to this idea of how all of these things integrate. So definitely you need that because when we're talking today about family, and that's what I'm talking about, that takes and plays a huge role in what happens with finances down the road and what happens with friendships down the road and what even happens with your physical health down the road. And so Passover is very much of a family-centric experience, but a family-centric experience where the father is in place. In other words, in the system of ancient Jewish wisdom that I share with you, we do not call a family anything other than a husband and a wife and children. They both have to be in place. And I realize this is hard for, for you know, there, there are two women who um, are, consider themselves married and they both write. And, uh, and I read their material. I'm, I'm, I'm very impressed with much of what they write. Their lifestyle is something else that I, I can't relate to in any way, but I certainly wouldn't call them a family. So, Ancient Jewish wisdom is really pretty clear about this, and that is that uh, the avenue to freedom is, um, is family, a father-led family, and that means guys have to play our role doing that. Secondly, part of that role is introducing structure and order and discipline. And then we come to the third and final part of uh, the, um, the, 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 the Passover lessons that I want to impart to you during our podcast today. And that is 
Um, it's a peculiarity. It's, it's really a very funny thing. Let me tell you what I'm talking about. In this Haggadah, in this printed agenda that walks us through the entire Passover Seder that I'll be doing tonight, and I will be following this page by page, it repeatedly stresses how important the entire episode of the Exodus of Egypt was in the formation of Jewish people. Crucial. So central that when we say a kiddush, a blessing over the wine, sanctifying the Sabbath, for instance, every week, every Friday night, um, we, uh, we thank God and we, we don't say who created heaven and earth, which you would have thought is the bigger thing. We say, thank you, God, who took us out of Egypt. Like, so taking out of Egypt is bigger than the creation of the world? Yeah, actually, yes. If your focus is your five F's, if your focus is your growth as a human being, if your focus is becoming more effective financially and family-wise and as a friend and looking after your own body and relating to God, well then, yes, then, yes, God as the one who introduced this notion of freedom with the Exodus story, it actually is more important to us than the creation of the earth. And so, because, you know, God created the world. Some people think evolution created the world. Whatever, it doesn't matter. But what really matters is that this concept of freeing oneself from tyranny, that really matters. And that tyranny can be an external force. It can be a government that gives you checks. It can be a, a boss. It can be a slave owner. And it can also be your own body. It can become your tyrant where you just do things that you feel like all the time. Tragedy in the making. Very, very sad and, and very, uh, very, very horrible. So, um, so we looked at the fact that there's got to be a father and there's got to be a family structure. That makes it possible for there to be structure and order and discipline and restraint and limitations. And then the last part of the Seder experience as we walk through, it keeps on talking. Yeah, story of going out of Egypt, going out of Egypt, going out of Egypt. And yet, you'd have thought that as part of the observance in the Seder, we'd really read chapters from the book of Exodus. Here, the plagues, this is what God did, this is what Moses said, that's what Pharaoh, none of that is there. What's going on? And what I want to tell you about is something really very fascinating. And it's something that I have um, uh, not taught before, and I'm going to teach it at my Seder tonight, but I'm also wanting to give it to you so you can benefit from this and use it in your day-to-day living. And this is it. It's fascinating. You never would have thought so. I always like it when, you know, 2,000 years later, modern academia discovers something that ancient Jewish wisdom has been teaching for 2,000 years. I, I always love that. I find it so entertaining and so interesting and so, um, and so reassuring in, in, a, in a funny kind of a way. And so one of the things that is, um, uh, that is being spoken of in academia, mostly at Emory University in Atlanta at the moment, uh, fascinating. And that is they have tested again and again and again, and they found that children in families where the children know the family history do much better on every indicator than children in families where there is no conversation about the family history. 
And so this is what's going on in the Passover Seder, of course. And that's why Abraham is mentioned in the Seder. Moses isn't. Isn't that something? Because as far as our familial history, we go all the way back to Abraham. We've got to know about what happened. This is a lesson each of us can use in our own families. And please try this. I want you to try whether you're raising children or you may be helping other people raise children or you're going to be. But if you're embarking or are embarked on the incredible adventure of building a family, make sure that you tell your children stories. Tell them about how you and your spouse met. Tell them about um, what was going on in the world at the time. Particularly talk about challenges that maybe uh, you and your spouse went through. Maybe you'll talk about challenges that their grandparents, your children's grandparents went through, your parents and your in-laws. Make sure your children know about these things. Build a legacy of a family history. There are, I mean, do your children know why they have the names they know? They, why they have, why did you name them those names? Have you ever told your children the story behind their naming? Um, you know, do your children know uh, what sort of work you, what sort of jobs were you doing before you got married? Do they know that? Um, do they know stories about your childhood? You it, it takes a skill to tell the story in a way that people want to listen because you can, you know, it can turn into the sort of meandering recollections. The way you, you get past that is to prepare. Don't just come up with a story when it grabs you. Uh, make sure mealtimes, by the way, great time to do it. But make sure you prepare the story so as that it's exciting and interesting and, uh, and has its tension in it. It has its ups and downs. Uh, make sure that your children know. And, um, and that, I think, is really the important lesson that uh, I want to finish off with as I review the three practical life lessons that come out of the Passover experience. Fathers have to be fathers and husbands have to be husbands. Guys, you condemn the next generation if you're not doing what you should be doing. And as I said earlier, that is why uh, the, the community used to have a real legitimate say in how with whom you liaised, because the result could well be children that become dependent on the rest of everybody else around. And so people are entitled to say, hey, don't you go about starting off creating, bringing children into the world if you haven't yet created a stable environment of a marriage and a family. Don't do it. That's what used to happen. Today, that's all gone. And so in, in the United Kingdom and in the United States, frightening numbers of children are born to single mothers, frightening numbers. There's no father involved. Please do not buy in to the feminist uh, rubbish that women can do it as well as men. There are things that only women can do and men cannot do, and that's why you absolutely need a mother. But there are also things that only a man can do, and that's why you need a husband and a father. Please don't fool yourselves, because it's the rest of us who end up paying the price for you committing this ultimate failure. See, fooling other people 
is a sin. Fooling other people is bad, but it's nowhere near as bad as fooling yourself. Lying to yourself, it's a real tragedy. And so you, you really do need the man. Ser lebeit avot, a lamb for a, a lamb for each male-led, for each fa- not male father-led household. Number two, discipline, structure, and order, essential for raising children. Can't do it without. And uh, finally, utilize the incredible family-building power of stories. Tell the family stories. Worthwhile and uh, also a great adventure. My dear friends, it's time for me to uh, run off and get ready for the Passover experience, and it's time for you, each one of you happy warriors, to focus on building your families and your faith, your finances and your friendships and your fitness, and above all, it's realizing that to do those five jobs effectively, you actually have to integrate them into one job. Because we are holistic human beings. Our bodies and our souls are interconnected. Our social lives and our private lives are interconnected. Everything is interconnected. Our spiritual and physical lives are connected. And so make sure you've downloaded your copy of the free book called The Holistic You. It opens up new, exciting vistas of what you can do with your life. Go ahead, enjoy that, move forwards, onwards and upwards, until we are together again for the next Rabbi Daniel Lappin show, God willing, next week. And until then, onwards and upwards, I say, right? Every happy warrior and every want-to-be happy warrior, methodically, carefully and in a balanced way, in a symmetrical way, as I explained last week, build your faith and your finances, your family and your fitness and your friendships all at the same time. I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappin. God bless.